Our Old Testament reading this morning is a responsive reading from various passages in the Old Testament. Please join me. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient past. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Our New Testament reading is from the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in the 5th verse. It's located on page 880 of your pew Bible. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Living in the midst of change, 
destruction, and chaos. The last three weeks in Luke 20, we have observed Jesus' teaching in the temple. In the scene before us this morning, Jesus and the disciples are now leaving the temple as evening approaches. The disciples remark in passing as they leave the temple, they remark about the beauty and the architectural wonder of the temple itself. Jesus shockingly replies that this temple, which they in which they see such beauty, such greatness, that temple would soon be destroyed. We look at this passage. And we want to speak of, of prophecy, of the return of Jesus Christ. And certainly it speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem. Those are good subjects. But in this powerful exchange this morning, I want us to see that Jesus was telling his disciples how to live in the midst of of traumatic change in the midst of destruction, in the midst of chaos. And that brings us to our first point. As we look at this passage, we see first inevitable change. Look at verses 5 and 6. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come, when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This temple had the look of permanence. It had the look of eternity. The, this temple had been 46 years in the building. It would still have over 20 years before it would be completed. How many buildings do you know today that took 66 years to build? The foundation stones of the temple were as large as boxcars. In Mark 13:1, it's there on your scripture sheet, we read, as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And it was magnificent. It was one of the wonders of the ancient Roman world. It had nine enormous gates, just a temple. And the exterior and the gates were covered with gold and silver. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived at this time and lived through the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. Listen to what he wrote at that time. He was a very prolific writer as a historian. The exterior of the building, he was speaking of the temple, the exterior of the building could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated against the gold so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. To approaching strangers, it 
appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling on and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length. This building looked like it would be there forever. It looked eternal. Yet Jesus, as they admired the greatness and beauty and wonder of it, Jesus shocked them by speaking of the transient nature of that temple. He said change would come and it would be disastrous. One stone would not be left on another. The temple would cease to exist. Jesus, of course, was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in 70 AD, only 35 or 40 years after this. But Jesus did not need to be a prophet to tell them that the temple would one day cease to exist. We can say that about anything around us. Anything that we see, everything is always changing. Nothing stays the same. Heraclitus was a Greek philosopher. He lived about 500 years before Christ. He was one of the earliest metaphysical philosophers. He made the observation that if you put your foot, he was famous for this, it's if you if you put your foot in the river and you go back the next day and put your foot in the river, you don't put it in the same river. Why? Because the water that you put your feet into is far downstream by that time. You put it in a completely different water. Heraclitus was saying that everything around us changes every second, every minute. Nothing stays the same. We have all said, you know, I just wish I could stop time right now. I wish we could freeze the world like it is right now. What are you saying? I don't don't want this to change. I want everything to stay the same right now, just like it is. You're recognizing the truth of what Heraclitus and Jesus were saying. Everything. Everything is impermanent. I said this week and tried to think of one thing that I knew in my life that was not changing. Now we picture the universe. The universe is, it doesn't change. The universe is expanding as we speak. If you were around several hundred thousand years from now and you looked at the sky, you would not see the same stars. In fact, you wouldn't see as many stars because they're moving away from us. They would no longer be visible. The solar system, our solar system, is not where it was when I started this message. Continents are shifting. Trees and grass growing may be imperceptible, but they're changing. Here's the real thought. Your body is aging with every tick of the clock. Aren't you glad you came this morning? (laughs) I preached several years ago at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. The 11 o'clock service there was televised. Someone sent me a video of that service. I wish they hadn't. I put it up. I didn't watch it. But sometime later, I ran across the tape and I said to Jane, let me put this in. I want to see what it is. And that's what it was. 
the day that I preached there. As I watched the video, I could not believe my eyes. The lights over me in the pulpit had been very, very bright. And I yelled into the kitchen, Janet, when did I lose my hair? People, everything is changing. Inevitable change. That's what you see in this passage. They looked at something they thought was eternal. And Jesus says, no, it will be gone in just a few years. Secondly, I want you to see, Jesus wants us to see in this passage, inescapable destruction. Look at verse 6. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple will be destroyed. Everything is not only changing, it's ultimately moving toward decay, decomposition, and destruction. Heraclitus, that Greek philosopher, was also known as the weeping philosopher. Why? Because his philosophy of life was so gloomy. It was so dark. He understood that everything was changing and that everything changing was decaying, decomposing, or being destroyed. Now, this is directly related to the secular culture in which we live. Stay with me. Bertrand Russell, the English atheist and philosopher, was the 20th century. He was the modern Heraclitus. This is what he wrote. Listen to this. The same laws which produce growth also produce decay. Someday the sun will grow cold. And life on the earth will cease. The whole epoch of animals and plants is not only an interlude between ages that were too hot and ages that will be too cold. There's no law of cosmic progress, but only an oscillation upward and downward with a slow trend downward on the balance owing to the diffusion of energy. From this, this is the key statement, from this, so far as our present knowledge shows, no ultimately optimistic philosophy can be validly inferred. That's what Russell understood. That's what Heraclitus understood. No ultimately optimistic philosophy can be validly inferred. Aren't you glad you came to hear this? A large number of people have sat in my office and said, John, I'm dying. They meant that they had been to the doctor and been told they had a terminal disease and a short time to live. It's a shocking thing to discover that you only have a few weeks or months to live. However, every person in this room is dying. We're all perishing. We all have a terminal condition. The writer of the great hymn, Abide With Me, that we'll sing this morning, wrote in that hymn. It's not in our version that we have in the bulletin. But he wrote, change and decay. And all around I see. Where did he get that? He got it from scripture. And we see it every day. My mother seemed ageless. When she was 80, she looked like she was 50. She was 
mentally sharp. She was tall. She walked very, very fast. When she was 87, I had not seen her for some time, and she flew into Memphis for a visit. As we walked away from the gate at the airport, I was surprised that I looked down at her. I wanted to say, Mom, when did you shrink? You're shorter than you used to be. I didn't say that. Don't worry. I didn't. But I thought it. And then I kept slowing up. She was not walking as fast as she once did. I related this to our daughter, Jamie. And she thought what I said was scandalous. She was offended. In her eyes, her grandmother, her mom, was eternal. She'll always be there. You know, the world changes, but some people, we just think they're permanent in our world. I told Jamie that my mother's body would one day fail. Her body would die, decompose. I said, your mother and I will become grandparents and then great grandparents. And then we, our bodies will fail us. I said, Jamie, you will become the matriarch in your family. And your children and your grandchildren will look at you like you did at your grandmother. We all, our bodies will fail. Go to our capital, go to Washington, to the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument. People, they'll one day cease to exist. If we've learned anything since 9-11, it should be this. Who would have dreamed that the two towers of the World Trade Center would disappear so soon after their creation from the New York skyline? That great temple in Jerusalem, when it was finally completed, it would be destroyed only seven years after the final work was done. An inevitable change. An inescapable destruction. We've got to turn this message around. It's going down. Let's turn the message. For we now come to see in this passage an immutable foundation. Now remember, he's been talking about change. Destruction, chaos, persecution. But notice at verse 24, they will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the, until, until when? Until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. In other words, hey, there's an end to this. And then look at verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man. Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus, Jesus himself, in a cloud with power and great glory, these things will begin to take place. Stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Do you see it? There will always be change. There will always be destruction. But through it, there's a plan. There's an ending. There's a purpose. A plan that culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. In the midst of change and destruction, there is and will be one 
constant in every age. The Son of Man will not change. God cannot be destroyed. His plan will not change. All this change, destruction, chaos, is working toward an end by his purpose. Jesus was saying, take heart, Matthew, take heart, John, take heart, James. One day you'll see this destroyed, but take heart. There is one constant. There's one absolute that cannot be changed. If you hadn't looked at anything else, look at Psalm 102.25 on your scripture sheet. Take it home and memorize it. In the beginning, you, that's God, laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. We think of the universe as being just indestructible. The universe one day will perish. But you, God, will remain. Creation will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same. Your years will never end. He chose to use the heavens and the earth in his imagery because they seem eternal and they're not. But you remain the same. The old theologians had a word for this. I love it. It's a word immutable. The immutability of God. What's that mean? The changelessness of God. The changeless nature of God. Look at Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Psalm 119, 89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm. It can't be destroyed. You can't destroy the word of God. Why? Because he's eternal. His word is eternal. And then there's precious passages in, in Hebrews. Hebrews 1.10. He also says in the beginning... In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will not perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. See, he's quoting from Psalms. But you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. And then Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In this changing world, there's one place, there's one person that does not change. So where do we live? Where do we live? Where do we live? Moses tells us in Psalm 90, verse 1, we read it in our call to worship. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, you were brought forth. You brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You were God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. There's one place to stand. There's one place to live. Jesus was saying to the disciples, you don't live in Jerusalem. Remember that. You don't live in the temple. Remember that. You don't live in Rome. You don't live on this earth. You don't live in this solar system. Where do you live? Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You are the place where we live. 
That's where our faith is. That's where our lives are. An inevitable change, an inescapable destruction, and a mutable foundation on which to stand. And then finally, an insistent steadfastness. What's all this mean for our lives? If we live in him, if he's unchangeable and we're, we base our lives, we live our lives in him, on his word. I want you to look at a verse. It doesn't seem profound, but it is. Each day, Jesus, Luke 21, 37, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. Go to the temple. We've seen him in the temple the last three weeks. That was one day. One day he was in the temple and he had all that conversation. And then he's leaving and he makes a statement. But he came back. If the temple's going to be destroyed, if all the if Jerusalem's going to, what, why, are, why are you coming back here the next day? Why are you continuing to teach? He returned every day and did what God called him to do. Remember, I quoted from Bertrand Russell a few moments ago. He said, no optimistic philosophy can be validly inferred. That's, that's modern man's worldview. That also means that any work in which we are engaged is useless. And that's just the conclusion Russell came to. This was Russell. This was Heraclitus' view of life. Here's a serious, serious, gigantic philosopher of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell. He wrote a book called A Free Man's Worship. And I want to read to you. They tell us in seminary, don't do what I've done this morning. Read like a paragraph. No one can keep up with it, but y'all are really smart, and you can. I want you to listen to this, because this is the philosophy of the world around you, of the secular world around you. I quote from Bertrand Russell. All the labor of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. The whole temple of man's achievement must be inevitably buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Now listen, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. He says, you've just got to build your soul upon unyielding despair. Not just despair, but unyielding despair. What is Russell's unyielding despair? It is simply this. That whatever you put your hands unto in this life is meaningless. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to fail like everything. It will be buried beneath, as he said, the ruins of the universe. That's not the conclusion of Jesus Christ. That's not the conclusion of this word. How different the conclusion of the gospel. You want to read it this week. We, next week, we meet in this room to celebrate the resurrection. I know most of you will spend time in the Gospels reading something of the resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But also add to that list, read 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter is about the resurrection. And come to the end of it in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. What is Paul's conclusion? Does it say... We, we live in the middle. We must just build our lives on unyielding despair. No. 
Listen, when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, when the mortal has put on immortality, when the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What's the conclusion? How does that affect our lives now? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. This is the last verse. This is what where the resurrection leads us. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. You hear that? Stand firm. Everything's changing. Everything is being destroyed. Everything's in chaos. You stand firm because of where you live. You've been our dwelling place in all generations. You know what that means? What's the conclusion of that? That whatever you do, I don't care whether you're a farmer, if you're a mother at home changing diapers, whether you're teaching your child to pray, it doesn't matter. All of that has eternal significance. It's related to eternity. The janitor sweeping the floor at school has meaning because of that. There's nothing in our lives. What do we do when we're eating? We'll go home in a few minutes and we'll have a meal. What do we do? We bow. Father, thank you for this. We understand where it comes from, where everything around us comes from. We understand how we're sustained. We understand where we're headed. Why do people despair in their work today? Why has a zeal for excellence disappeared? Because the philosophy of the hour is secular. The philosophy of the hour is existentialism. There is no God. There's no eternal purpose. Whatever you do will be buried under the ruins of the universe. It's meaningless. Is it a wonder that men despair and men and women despair in the work? Let's hear the end of it. One of my favorite illustrations comes from C.S. Lewis. As he wrote a book, as he wrote about the judgment of God, the universe being called to give an account. Lewis speaks of a story that comes from Shakespeare's King Lear. There's a man in Act 3, Scene 7 of King Lear. He has such a minor role that he isn't even given a name. He's just called the first servant. The characters around him seem to be very important. At least they think they are. They're given names. Their names are Reagan and Cornwall and Edmund and their royalty. And these men of rank, these men of royalty are about to do something very cruel. There's an old noble there named Gloucester. And they're about to put Gloucester's eyes out. And the first servant. He's not Gloucester's servant. In fact, he's a servant of, Ray, of one of either Cornwall or Edmund. And this first servant draws his sword and puts it to the chest of his master. Saying, I'll not allow this. You'll not put this old noble's eyes out. And Reagan steps behind the first servant and stabs him from behind. And the first servant dies. 
trying to save old Gloucester from having his eyes put out. And then Lewis makes this comment. If that scene is real life, what part do you want to play? You don't want to be Reagan or Cornwall. You want to be the first servant. Whatever you do this day, whatever you do this week, has eternal significance. One day that immutable God, that immutable creator, sustainer, and redeemer will call his creation and all of history into account. We live for that day because in that cross, our sinful lives have been redeemed to a life of meaning and purpose that reaches into eternity. Our hymn says something about that. Abide with me.